Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. Yeah, I actually met like one or two other Ernests in my life. And uh, there was actually one other one at Apple I think I met, Ernie Marietta. And uh, someday we'll do a three Ernest podcast just for fun. Ernest Cube? <laughs> yes. Oh, the other name we could have gotten with was Ernest Squared, but I think we're already pretty square in things. Uh, <laughs> it might be somewhat redundant. So last week we discussed Igwet, and you had some wonderful notes. You want to just walk through your questions and see if I can answer them? Yes. So um, you speak about transformational communities. I just realized I should probably clarify that I'm Prabhakar and you're Bruce because we just call each other Ernest, so someone, no one actually knows which Ernest is which unless they read the yeah. show notes. Anyway, at least this episode it will be clear. The rest of it will just be delightfully ambiguous. Anyway, go ahead. So, you, you speak in So, uh, uh, what is positive change and who decides what is positive? You know, it's an interesting question. And it's one of these sort of quantum questions that depends on who does the measuring. And the short answer is, um, the reason for saying this is a, it's almost kind of a challenge, is that anyone can say that they're trying to create positive change. But once you say that, then in some sense, anyone can hold you to that. And so the idea, you know, think about this, in some ways, it is a marketplace of ideas. And I know that you have a lot of concerns about markets and those are justified, but in some sense, the best you can do is kind of the uh, wisdom of the crowd in the sense that different communities, the whole point of having a platform where behavior is tracked and recorded in some appropriate way so that you have, you know, you're, you're, you as an individual have a reputation of your actions and interactions with other groups and you as a community or a circle have a record of your interactions with other groups and people can sort of judge based on those interactions whether a they believe that your purpose is positive and b whether they believe you are actually acting in a way that is achieving that positive goal so it is very much ill-defined it's not enforced top down it is uh, the I think my friend Craigan Sitiker was described it as ergodic, in that each uh, entity uh, is acting positively, recognizes other entities that are acting positively, and if they're all correct, then they all benefit because they're playing pro-social positive sum games. And so communities that uh, deviate from that have a burden of proof to win the trust of other people to interact with them. So the hope is that by having at least a nominal ascent to positivity and a record and, and sort of immutable records of inter-community interaction that you can uh, enable people, enable the wisdom of crowds to judge. 
So you're saying that uh, each individual decides what is positive. Oh. Kind. No, no, no at, at the base level, yes. But the point is, is that those votes and records are aggregated. So it's like reputation on Reddit, for example, right? Is that in some sense, there's two options. Um, well, so there, there's two extremes that we're trying to avoid. One is that somebody at the top decides on basis of everyone else. And that's dangerous when you're trying to create a revolution uh, because people at the top by definition will not approve of actions that threaten their power. Mm -hmm. uh, the other example is everyone decides for themselves based on their local information. But the, the third rule is more like the blockchain is everyone decides together based on looking at everyone else's information. You know, if I see someone and it's, it's, it's even fine grained, like say for example, that, uh, you know, um, I am a freedom fighter in a uh, occupied country and I'm trying to build bombs. Now, I may be philosophically opposed to people I consider terrorists in terms of the change they want to seek in the world, but I might highly value their reputation uh, in making homemade bombs. For example, a lot of you know, pro-American forces still like the AK-47 uh, because it's a useful tool. And so, kind of a grotesque example perhaps, but the reality is, is when we say we trust someone, it is really a matter of context. And the best we can do is sort of keep track of the context and the decisions we've made so that I don't have to decide, I have to decide for myself, but I don't have to decide by myself because I can look and see how other people I trust trust them, and I can look at the data that they are using to base those decisions. Okay, so it's a, a combination of being genuine to your uh, uh, stated, um, uh, I don't know, uh, values yeah. or ideals. So following mm -hmm. whatever you are preaching, but also uh, adding in whatever uh, trust level or, or or level of genuinity Compet that's the word let's say, let's say, uh, uh, yeah clarity other, and competence yeah Consist clarity com competence and consistency yeah you and, clear uh, goals you follow them consistently and you're competent in, in achieving them correct yeah it's very much what our friends at ltsc are doing you encourage people to publish what their values are and then describe the enforcement mechanisms that they're putting in place to achieve them. And then you can audit them in a sense. So yeah, I guess auditability is. is the best you could hope for in a large scale system is that you could at least say, you know, okay, you said this person really screwed you over. Well, you can look and see, did these people have an interaction? Did they actually have a financial transaction that took place on board? And that creates an audit trail where you can say, yeah, I can see that that happened. And right now we do that in centralized hierarchies all the time. And the hope is that eventually we can do that in a decentralized version. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of uh, uh, people or entities will be able to uh, digitize their level of um, trust in other entities by uh, having a record of uh, each entity's activities, behavior against their published 
uh, values and ideals. Right, um, objective. Yeah. yeah. And I think the important point is that if people want to cheat, they can. But the point is, is that if you really care about, like, I want to be held accountable to living out my values so I can get better at it, then I will take more and more actions on platform where they can be tracked and digitized in order to build up that reputation. So the idea is that, that uh, positive actors, pro-social actors, have a strong incentive to act in a way that is auditable, and negative actors have the opposite incentive. So the hope is that over time, people uh, opt in to appropriate levels of surveillance of their behavior as a, I mean, the technical term is virtue signaling, which is kind of a bad name, uh, but the goal is essentially to align virtue signaling with actual positive some outcomes for other people. Hmm. So it's okay. not perfect any more than any statistical system can be perfect, but that's really the best you can do is to give the people who want to do good a uh, uh, unhackable way, or at least a very difficult to hack way to demonstrate their virtue in a way that earns people's trust. And right now we know how to do that in small groups, and we know how to do that in larger platforms like Uber driver ratings or Amazon vendor ratings. And the goal is to create a social and cultural context where you can adopt a more decentralized blockchain-like system for doing those things. Mm-hmm. Reputation is, I guess, the short word, short answer. Irrevocable reputations. Irrevocable reputations. Okay. So, how are you are here? Your, in the simplest terms, you know, it's uh, uh, ways for uh, entities to have uh, how much trust they put in other entities so that they can uh, objectively measure or compare the other entities. Right, yeah, and I can't claim to have this all figured out. I mean, I talked about having some sort of in-system currency where you can track it. Uh, I think it's going to be a combination of implicit measures based on interaction. Like if you interact with somebody and then you interact with them again at a later time, that is a high, hard to fake signal of trust. And so there's a lot of implicit measures based on interaction level and longevity. And there's also explicit measures of cred and rating. And I think an ideal system would have a combination of both and people could choose to weight those as they wish. Like Cory Doctorow had the idea of left-handed woofy or negative social capital. If someone I despise really likes you, then my default position is that I'm going to be suspicious of you because you're aligned with their values and possibly not mine. And so there's these, so the idea is that you make the raw data available on which trust calculations are based so people can apply their own heuristics. Uh, that's going to become attention with privacy, but I'm ignoring that issue for now. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned uh, open source spirituality as an alternative structure for social movements. Um, how uh, we have how do share practices, which you define later in the essay, 
uh, reflect spirituality. Uh, so a social practice, um, uh, you say, are ways to uh, define how people and entities interact uh, with each other. So um, how do values and ideals translate into these code-based practices? Yeah, I think the interesting interface that I'm trying to define it's kind of the, uh, I just told someone this, it's the difference between the intra-psychic, how I relate to myself, and the inter-psychic, how I relate to other people. And uh, in particular, how do I relate to other people from my perspective versus how do I relate to them from their perspective? So people who have a, a moral code or a personal spirituality, they have some sense of how they view themselves and how they view the interactions with other people. Uh, in a more traditional religious system, you have a system of external norms for how external authorities can determine how you treat other people. Uh, the simplest example being marriage, where there's sort of an assumption of fidelity and shared assets, which is enforced by law and consequences, as well as social sanction of various kinds. And so the problem with spirituality has historically been that uh, for understandable reasons, they are suspicious of external religious authorities. So the idea is to say, well, to bridge that gap, we can say that um, I have my personal code of spirituality, and I'm not beholden to anyone to define what that code is. But I'm going to publish that code because I want people who share similar values in mind to help me in my journey. And, you know, everyone has some... Uh, antecedents that they draw upon, and some fellow travelers that they feel a kinship with. And the goal is to provide a, a easy mechanism for people like that to find each other and self-associate without the accumulations of power that have typically corrupted religious institutions throughout history. And so the idea of the right to fork and the idea of flat hierarchies or ad hoc hierarchies with easy defection means that when the system is working well, people get the benefits of those things. And when the system is working poorly, it falls apart. I mean, there's certainly going to be a lot of trade-offs on the margins, but the, right, the, the, the premise is that right now, there's really good systems for hierarchical accountability and really crappy systems for peer or ad hoc accountability. So anything we could provide would be a step up above the current status quo. So, uh, uh, you so using the term spirituality and religion um, may um, be of concern to people that are, you know, they uh, see those as uh, you know, as a belief in a deity and things like that. But uh, uh, do you see spirituality more like uh, a unifying set of morals or you I mean, actually... you know, I, I don't really feel, yeah. I mean, there are some people who have a very negative aspect of spirituality, like hardcore materialists, for example. And mm -hmm. I don't have anything against such people. Um, and so, you know, this is more of a manifesto than a code of conduct or a you know, a, a set of policies for enforcing. And, you know, I consider 
you know, sexual humanism, a form of spirituality, in my sort of definition of uh, an intra-psychic uh, state, uh, sort of pursuits that create intra-psychic benefits. So I, I'm not opposed to articulating that as a code of conduct or a sort of a code of honor or personal ethics. Uh, I'm more interested in the functionality of what the system is providing. And certainly I can see that, you know, they're understandable that some people would have a negative reaction to those terms. And I'm totally happy for them to translate, you know, the statement. And, you know, this is kind of a rambling essay. At some point, this, you know, if this is actually successful, it will need to turn to more formal set of documents and statements. Um, but um, for me, the, the point I'm trying to get is trying to get to the functional essence of what we are trying to do and then let people translate that into whatever language they want to use, whether that's French or German or secular language or Ethereum contracts is to me a secondary concern at this point in the game. Obviously at some point it'll become a critical factor how people do that. But the point is that this is not intended to be a top-down thing where I get to say yes or no. Everyone can interpret this as they see fit. And if it has the same functional behavior, then if I've designed the APIs correctly, We'll get the same benefit regardless of which terms they use. I think I may have lost your audio unless you're pausing. Hello? One, two, three. Hello? I heard the hello. I didn't hear anything before that. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay. Sorry, I have a bad T-Mobile signal here. Um, so uh, you mentioned networks of practice, which are essentially collections of these practices that uh, uh, determine how people interact with each other. Um, and they provide many benefits. They provide the, the benefits of institutional structures without the temptations of centralized power or the dist mm -hmm. distract distortions of masses exhaust. Um, mm -hmm. And you talk about competence. Practices uh, provide a scaffold to demonstrate competence and without bad actors. So mm -hmm. is competence um, a function of how many entities practice that, um, that an entity has authored or modified? Right. Right. So I think the the useful example of this, the paradigmatic paradigmatic case really this is martial arts dojos. So there are many schools of martial arts: karate, kung fu, taekwondo, judo, etc. Uh, but uh, because of historical reasons, they all have a similar grading scale of you know, white belt, yellow belt, green belt, red belt, black belt, et cetera, based originally on an informal system of just how long you've been around and how weathered your clothing became. And what's interesting is that, my understanding is that, you know, externally, those of us in the culture have sort of a vague sense of what a black belt is, and they're roughly equivalent in all the different martial schools. Um, each individual school has its own quirks and peculiarities and probably relationships to other schools. And individual dojo, uh, you know, has their own 
lineage of who trained whom and what standards they use for things. And innovations, like why someone's doing it, he had striped belts, which they used for the pre-yellow level to give smaller kids a sense of progression, uh, which, you know, I think is pretty much a Western uh, childcare in invention, but it works within the existing system. So the idea is that when you've got a cultural set of norms around what these things mean, then there's room for innovation. But if you innovate too far and start violating the spirit, you will get a reaction from the other communities. And so the idea is as long as it's, it's sufficiently public and sufficiently transparent, people will either accept your rankings or they will translate. Just like, for example, grading in the United States today. There is no central authority on what an A means. Every teacher kind of decides with guidance from the school or the district. Uh, and yet somehow we figure out a way to make it work. And that's kind of the idea is that if you have a human practice where you have a certain set of terms and you have some common heritage, it's what I would say prototype-based inheritance rather than class-based inheritance. Somebody does something, somebody else copies it and tweaks it for their context. And then you determine in practice whether you think it's close enough. And sometimes you add fudge factors uh, to say, you know, these guys are way too easy on their grades, these other people are too hard, et cetera. And uh, it actually works remarkably well most of the time. It does mean that there is some disincentive to, uh, you know, tinkering with the assumptions, but that's also an opportunity. If you, because there is a disincentive to tinker, if you have the courage to do it and you pull it off, you gain enormous status. And so there is a reasonable risk reward trade-off for innovating within such a system, as opposed to a hierarchical system, again, where there's one central authority that gets to decide what everyone means. It sort of gets decided effectively in an open market of competition. And again, going back to my earlier trope, which you know I'm hoping is true, that as long as you have radical transparency and uh, symmetric data exchange, uh, eventually it tends to create a wisdom of the crowds effect. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? Yes. All right. Um, I think I'm going to call this the EAQ episode for earnest asked questions. One step before the FAQ because no one else has asked them before. Oh, I, I get it. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So uh, you talked about the networked communities. Uh, network communities have not been able to get into hierarchical institutions. Um, the hierarchy enables rapid decision making and, and mass conformity. Uh, Mass conformity, uh, which is a good advantage. Uh, you also say that in an industrial world, the networks should have the edge to be able to rapidly. So, you describe Igwer as being the anti Facebook. And right now, of course, Facebook has a whole lot of power uh, because they have a whole lot of data, which allows them to uh, uh, do all, all kinds of things. Uh, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, how uh, are uh, help with that? Because in a network, your network communities, uh, they. Uh, same power that Facebook has, right? 
each community has some certain amount of data, but Facebook has all the data. So how can, how do you see EGWED helping? Sure, so there's two kinds of competition. There's symmetric competition and asymmetric competition. Uh, I was reading a story about how, you know, for a thousand years, the definition of a, if not more, the definition of a city was a community with walls. And if you didn't have walls, you were just a town. If you did have walls, you were a city. And that puts you in a different playing field in terms of longevity and social structure and so forth. And what eventually destroyed that was gunpowder, uh, cannons, and eventually uh, other forms of warfare, uh, which overwhelmed the advantages of having a economics of having a wall. And so, you know, having a centralized authority that can build walls is really good when you're competing against siege engines. But uh, as the Belgians discovered during World War One, uh, mostly useless against determined uh, cannons. And so people stopped competing on the basis of walls and started competing on other bases for, for national defense or city state defense, as the case may be. So anyway, uh, the point is that we don't have to compete I mean, if we were trying to get advertising dollars, then yes, we'd be competing symmetrically against Facebook. But that is a race I don't think either of us wants to win. What we want to compete with is just for user attention. And here the interesting thing is that it's not really a symmetric competition because Facebook is competing to get the most time in order to show ads. Uh, and so they have a natural incentive to drive people down to maximum engagement at lowest possible quality or lowest acceptable quality. With Igwet, the goal is to get people at their best to devote their best time to doing things that matter and reward them for doing so so that they do more of it. And so in that case, you don't really need data uh, in that sense. I mean, at some level, you need some amount of data to grow, but really what you need is, you don't need centralized data. What you need is for people who trust, which only really is you need people who use IGWET who are doing positive things and find IGWET helps them to do that to tell other people they know who want to do positive things to grow. And so it is that you grow on the edges as people recruit others to do similar things to what they're doing. Yeah. Why should I waste my time on this? Well, you, more people say that. Ernest. Yeah. You repeat what you said in the last. I'll, I'll summarize. Is that we're not trying to compete against Facebook directly in terms of getting people to stop using Facebook. We're trying to give people a reason to do something better than using Facebook. And if even a few pe people start doing that, the hope is that if we actually succeed in making them better human beings then that's how we fork humanity. If people who choose to act in pro-social ways and become part of this new movement will, will sort of naturally spend less time on Facebook and decrease the value proposition over time so that more people make the switch. 
And the goal is not to destroy or defeat Facebook. The goal is to provide an alternative that has better outcomes for those who choose to pursue them. Yeah, instead of being consumers of Facebook, yeah, we want participants of eGwet and, and all the communities that will enable. So, yeah, practitioners, I guess, is the word I would go for. Okay. Or creators. Yeah. Yeah, more, more. Yeah, having more power, not just being, uh, not just consuming, but actually producing content and yeah, and have, yeah. I guess this would include having ownership of your content and not mm -hmm. uh, have not having a, um, a a publisher of your content, which you know, like Facebook is. It would it also imposes its own set of values. Um, in deciding which content to allow and which content not to allow. Right. Yeah. And to be fair, they, you know, they kind of had to do it at the time because if you just allowed every, because otherwise you would only hear content from the people you followed and that would overwhelm you and it wasn't very productive. And so the algorithm was better relative to that because it gave you more relevant and interesting concept, content. The problem is, is their business model was skewed for, to maximize engagement while ever lowering the borrower quality. So therefore they tend to appeal to your, your base self rather than your higher self, uh, mm -hmm. the most indulgent version of you rather than the wisest, most far-sighted version of yourself. And the goal is to try and flip that script because we're monetized based on uh, really you becoming a role model that inspires other people to join. And then how much or how little you use it is irrelevant. What matters is how well you use it. Mm -hmm. Okay, one last question. Um, this is about the shared library of relational practices. Uh, and this is more like a, a, an implementation question, which I'm curious about. So, uh, is, are these practices similar to Ethereum contracts? And how does the language look like when it comes time to code these uh, practices? Right. So the, you know, and this is still under development. So I can tell you what my current thinking is on this, is that it's kind of like, uh, hold on a second, let me just take this real quick. Hold. My daughter was asking a question about the Apple TV. Um, anyway, so the, the, the way that I do it is it's like a design pattern or a user story. So a practice says, when in this situation, try this action in order to achieve this result. For example, one of our social practices is when someone commits a crime to you, try calling the police to invoke the criminal justice system so that the society as a whole can decide on the appropriate uh, punishment. You know, and that replaced other practices such as lynching. And the idea is that uh, it's not supposed to be um, normative, it's, it's not supposed to be mandatory practices, like you must do this. Because the whole one's kind of evolving system, but it's trying to say, um, 
here's, I mean, I, I reject the term best practices because people tend to idolize those as like the right way to do it. Um, but that is, you, you define the atomic unit of a practice. And then you could also say, this is our current community practice. If someone makes a racist or sexist joke, then our practice is to confront the perpetrator in these ways so that uh, you know, we create a safe space for everyone. And so the goal is to just create sort of a common framework that, that breaks it down into these contexts and consequences uh, to make it easier for people to, and then you try to create some social structure and incentives, even if it's just prototyping, to say that these people will um, use this system and then you get some convergence so you can share practices. Hold on a second. All right, my daughter is asking for help deciphering which of the many different versions of Dr. Doolittle. As we were just discussing, right, when you have multiple versions of something with the same name, it can get confusing. Mm -hmm. So the hope is that providing a common structure for you know, what a well-formed practice is, and then a common namespace. So you can say this is you know, practice one, and this is practice 51, and they're two different things, then people can be precise and say, well, I accept both of them, for this purpose, or I do one. And so then the hope is that by consciously naming things, we can build a culture of sharing and improving practices and taking things that are usually ad hoc cultural uh, learning and turn them into explicit uh, things that we think about and argue about and improve. And I don't know if this is going to actually work. I, you know, I wrote up a few and didn't really get much feedback yet. But I feel like there is a there there, and I want to keep pushing on until I figure out what would actually be useful for people. And that's the purpose of discussion and thinking together. Yeah, and it, yeah. All right, uh, those were some great questions. Anything else before we wrap up? Uh, no, but you you wanted to also speak about uh, your cast the. the yeah, I think we'll save that for next week. Uh, the okay. teaser for that is Isabel Wilkerson's uh, book on cast, which is making the rounds here in August. And the idea that, you know, one of the ways that societies both promote and subvert this idea of pro-social behavior and meritocracy is by dividing people into castes. And if you're within a caste, you are very pro-social and meritocratic to other people within your caste. But to those outside their caste, uh, you don't have that same sense of obligation. It's just okay for them to be the way they are and suffer in, in various ways relative to yours. And what's really fascinating relative to her book, and the reason I use the phrase caste party, was that Republicans and Democrats, the Democrats are right to criticize the Republican focus on caste based on ethnicity. But Democrats have their own system of caste based on education, uh, which is also, effectively heritable given the way our systems are run in America and are just as toxic if in very different ways. And so a party cast, cast party is a bad pun. 
And anyway, my daughter has had enough of me being on the phone, so I will go deal with the demands of offspring and get back to you next week. All right, Ernest. Thank you, Ernest. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. You too.